Take one. And action! There are stories being written right now. Our mission is to speak the truth. I just want to make sure that I get it right. I can't say that I regret any of my actions. In many ways, this has been the best time of my life. And cut right there. We are on the brink of liberty. Now is the time for action. Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host Rob Daniel. As always, I'm very happy to say I'm joined by my learned co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Well, you might not be saying that in about an hour's time when I have sniffled and slurped my way through this podcast. I'm racked with cold right now. So I am sorry for the sniffs and for the coughs and for the slightly bunged up nature of my voice. We'll see how it goes. Hopefully the Merkin mic will... Yes, we have one of those <laughs> Merkin mics that is a big furry thing that is on the end of the mic. Cuts out wind if you're outside. <laughs> don't, tell us, don't tell me you're yes, suffering from that as well. Yes. So it cuts out wind if you're outside and if you're indoors, it apparently reduces the amount of breaths that make it onto the podcast. And I do feel quite breathy today, a bit short of breath, totally bunged up. So anyway, cheers for listening. As always, uh, let's get the plugs out of the way first. You can find my stuff at electric-shadows.com. You can find me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel, the most cumbersome of all the Twitter handles. You can find the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Stitcher, thank you. There's another one, Pocket Cast. And Rob, how about you? Where can we find your stuff? Uh, you can find my writing at uh, Of All The Film Sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com, or follow me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. Lovely stuff. In this episode, we are going to do a roundup of the London Film Festival. So we are recording this on Tuesday the 23rd, so it ended on Sunday the 21st. So fresh in Rob's mind, I could only attend until Thursday the 18th, because I went to Croatia, to Dubrovnik, and had a bit of a Game of Thrones thing there, because it was really cool, and it's of course where King's Landing is, so that was ace. It did mean that I missed out on some of the films... But Rob was a trooper and took one for the team, and he saw pretty much all the big films. Well, we will be discussing those. I saw most of the big films. I did have a couple of days, though, when there were the smaller, some of the smaller, in, more indie titles where I just woke up and went, no, you know what, today's today's a bed day. Today is a catching up on some R&R. Because that's the thing, we, you know, I've been doing this for about five years now, and I've been taking off, I take it off as holiday every year, take off, in this case, eight days. Yeah, me and, too. Um, and, it's, and yeah, and I love doing it, and it's great getting immersed in all these, you know, these new releases. Well, not yet new releases, yeah. Film, films that are yet to come out. On the other hand, it is also good to get some R&R. I mean, it is the ultimate in first world problems when we talk about how tiring it is to watch three or four movies a day. Because we also try to write them up, we try to do something around them as well. And it can be quite exhausting sitting and watching a lot of films. I mean, yes, it is the ultimate first world problem. I do love going to the London Film Festival. They always have a good selection of films. This year they had about 225 films, so yeah, something to cater for everyone's taste. 
and shorts, which I never really bother with, but maybe I should because apparently some of the shorts were very good. There was 160 shorts or something like that. Maybe that was documentaries. No, there were 40 documentaries. Anyway, hundreds of movies. But it can get slightly tiring, and my body told me... So the day that I went to Croatia, I was going to go and see The Favourite, which was a quarter to nine screening in the morning, and then go to the airport. I just totally... Well, I didn't even sleep through my alarm because it's an iPhone. I actually got up, turned it off, and went back to bed without waking up. So <laughs> I woke up and it was about eight o'clock or 20 to eight, and it's like, oh, all right, oh. But my alarm went off and it's all, all right, I just turned it off and went back to bed again because it's across the room. So I think that shows just how knackered I was this year. But anyway. Um, the favourite, of course, being the New York Anthemos film, mm. which was, in fact, one of my favourites of the festival. Although, I have to say, I don't think it was a bumper year by any stretch. I would say that. It's interesting, because when I look back at what I saw, I saw, I think, 19 films. Only one of them, I think, was a duffer. And it was a duffer and a half, and we'll get on to that. The rest of them, though, I think were really good movies. There wasn't a five-star film this year, I don't think. No, um, I, I found the same. I mean, last year there were a couple of five-star films, uh, most memorably Lucky, the yes. uh, John Carroll and Charlie Stanton film, which is still seems a strong contender for my film of this year, now it's actually being released. <laughs> well, last year I had Three Billboards was a five-star film for me, The Shape of Water was a five-star film for me, and I know the one that you love, he doesn't really, Last Flag Flying. That was a five-star film for me as well. So there were three five-star I think, films. I think you are the only person left flying that flag roll. <laughs> yeah, that really did not get a lot of love when that got released. That went to Amazon very, very quickly, and it's kind of been a really overlooked film, but I think it's great, and hopefully it will get rediscovered. But yeah, there wasn't a five-star film this year. There were lots of four-star films. It was a, it was a solid year. It wasn't yeah. a stellar year, but it was a solid year. And it opened with a bang with Widows. The new Steve McQueen film. Our husbands aren't coming back. We're on our own, and he wants his money. What if we say no? He has people who kill people. You have a choice. In or out. I'm in. Then, everybody ready? So based on a TV series by Linda LaPlante, made in 1983 for ITV. Apparently it's very good. I've not actually seen the show, but I think it's getting a release on Blu-ray next month. So in November, and apparently is well worth a look and still holds up really well. And we've both got copies of the novelisation, which yes. they are handing out at the screening, at the press screening, which is something I'd never seen before. Yeah, I'd never seen that at the LFF before. I'd, I've, I've seen that at lots of press screenings where you get a copy of the book. So there was, God, Safe Haven, which I think is a Nicholas Sparks book. We all got a copy of that. Well, we were offered one. There were how, lots long of did that take, how long did that take to make it onto eBay? Uh, I didn't actually take it because um, I just thought, no, I don't want that. Anyway, so Widows is about um, a group of women who all of their significant others are bank robbers or career criminals. The husbands all explosively die at the beginning of the film. It's the very beginning of the film and it's called Widows, so you know that something's going to happen to the guys. In a heist gone wrong, and amongst the husbands there's Liam Neeson and John Bernthal... And it's a really explosive opening because it intercuts the last moment of domesticity with the husbands and the wives. It's intercut with the heist going wrong and it goes explosively wrong. And it's a really, really good opening. And, and it's a great cut because it's uh, a jump cut. At just the point, it's got a Liam Neeson and Viola Davis who plays uh, Veronica. 
I think yeah. it's her name, uh, his wife, and they're, they're lying in bed, sort of, been, it opens on them making out, and he sort of playfully snarls at her, and that snarl becomes the whine of a bullet as it'll suddenly jump into the back of this incredibly claustrophobic van, one of the doors hanging off, you know, sparking on the road behind, as they're in full pursuit. Yeah, and it really is a great way to open up your film if you want to grab someone's attention. Yeah, so Viola Davis and Michelle Rodriguez and Elizabeth Debicki. Cynthia Erivo. Yes, well, she's brought into the gang, isn't she? Yes, she's not one of the one of the widows. Yeah, because the other one is Carrie Coon, who was in The Leftovers, and she was in Gonga, lots of films. Oh, don't forget Avengers Infinity War. Yes, yeah, she's in that as well. She plays Proxima Midnight. But she doesn't want to join the gang, so they have to get someone else in. So the widows are literally left holding the bag for the heist gone wrong. They have to get the money back to the person who's been stolen from, who is a local gangster. It's all set in Chicago. Who's a local gangster. Played by Brian Tyree Henry. Yes, who was in Atlanta. He's had an impressive year. He's also in Hotel Artemis and um, a film that we talking about. I'll be talking about at least in some detail later, If Beale Street Could Talk. So they are left instructions from Liam Neeson's character, I think it was called Harry, and he basically left a very, very detailed notebook that outlines how to do what would have been his next heist. So the women are going to turn it into their first heist so they can get this money to pay back Jamal Manning. I thought The Widows was great. It was a really entertaining, exciting, slick Hollywood thriller. But if you wanted it, it could be more than that. I think it, I thought it had something to say about America right now, how institutions, particularly the political institutions, are corrupt. They are just in it for themselves. They are just looking to make money for themselves. They don't actually believe in any kind of civic pride or anything like that, or helping constituents. And it really was one of those that said, if you want to affect change, you have to do it yourself. You can't stand around waiting for those in power to do it for you, which I thought was very relevant. Um, And Colin Farrell plays Jack Mulligan, who is uh, running to be alderman of the 18th Ward, I think it is, against Jamal Manning. Yes. Farrell's father, Jack Mulligan's father, was the previous alderman who had retired due to health issues, and he's played by Robert Duvall, and he is just this scabrous, belligerent, Racist. racist <laughs> old who, white man who sees it as you know their right he thinks it's his son's birthright that he will just be born into the political infrastructure of chicago and they will continue their family fortune so there's a lot of moving parts here and there's daniel kaluuya plays jatem manning jamal's brother that's a nice thing isn't it because yeah jatem means love and jamal means beauty and they are the opposite of that so Jamal is not a particularly beautiful... He doesn't have a particularly beautiful soul. He is corrupt. But he sees getting into politics as a way to... As a safer way to make money. Yes. You know, white-collar crime. is not as lethal as... Dealing drugs. As dealing drugs, that's right, yeah. And Jatem is just a psycho who... Dead-eyed psycho. Sort really of dead-eyed. Stalking the periphery of the film. Dispensing harm. <laughs> on, on some people who... Probably don't not deserve it, and some people who definitely don't deserve it. Yeah, there are some quite tough scenes in this film, but it is really enjoyable. It reminded me of Inside Man or The Town, just one of those really intelligent thrillers. And uh, the women together are just fantastic. So Verna Davis, who won the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for Fences, you know is going to be very good. And Michelle Rodriguez, who of course is best known for Fast and Furious films now, I thought was allowed to do some proper acting. And she was great in it as well. And everyone's got something to lose. It's one of those things where no one's secure. Even those in a certain position of power, their world could drop out from under them at any moment. And I thought that 
again, tied into something to say about today's society where you are on your own and everything can be taken away from you at a moment's notice. And I thought that Michelle Rodriguez's character, who owns a shop and it gets taken away from her, that really came through with Mm -hmm. her. And the Elizabeth Debicki character. So she was in The Night Manager, of course. The game was great. It's hard to do a character who moves from being a bit of a punching bag to being someone who's very strong and resourceful in a believable way. But in this film, I thought that that was done really well in the writing, but also in her performance as well. I mean, she arguably has the most notable character arc in the film. Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, You know, she starts off as somebody who's... She's always sort of been kept... And, and the first thing that you know, her mother, who's played by Jackie Weaver, uh, says to her is, you know, well, you should you should do escorting. You know, pay yourself through college by doing that. And yeah, she, and, that's a horrible yeah. scene when she has that website saying, "Well, I was looking at this, and this looks like a nice way to make money, and it's this escort site." Oh, mum. And then she meets this guy who you know sees it as you know who's very charming and polite and seems to maybe care for her, but underneath you get the sense it is all transactional. It's a film in which the characters know the cost of everything and the value, value of, of nothing. nothing. And one of the things that is that film seems to say is if you can find a certain amount of community in your life with others then that's how you'll eventually win yeah so there is an element of hope to it i mean so i on the other hand know the the value of everything and the cost of nothing so you know I'd, I'd, this, <laughs> what this film cost what a billion dollars <laughs> <laughs> yes that's right yeah that's right <laughs> The only thing that I would say, I mean, you know, it's not a five-star film, but it's a really, really solid four-star film. It's just one of those, I don't think anyone would not enjoy this film. It moves at a pretty stately pace. It's never boring. It has a twist that I thought, oh, that's, oh, that's really good, that I didn't see coming. But you... I did see it coming. I understand why it's there and it does serve a, it does serve a purpose, but it's almost, I found it almost a bit disappointingly generic in terms of like, oh, of course, if there is a twist, which I think there might be, that would be it. Right. Because that's how this film would typically work. And you know, one thing, I know that the premise dates back 35 years, <laughs> but yeah, the notion of taking, you know, it would usually be Liam Neeson and John Bernthal carrying out the heist and that would be the film and maybe, they're, maybe they would be the widowers and, they've, and, and they're doing this job. And, but just to flip that and say, actually, you know, we want to look at the widows and look at these, these capable women dealing with their grief, struggling to basically keep their worlds together. It's, it's, it's a really impressive piece of genre filmmaking from the guy whose last film dealt with the issue of slavery and won him best picture and best director as well of course yeah with uh, 12 years a slave which is and it is a thing with steve mcqueen because i did not i didn't like hunger i thought the hunger was technically impressive and intellectually malnourished uh, i thought shame was just laughable nonsense and although it does you know have the uh, the opening the recreation of the opening shot of star wars done with uh done with michael fassbender's cock <laughs> To put it bluntly. Yes, it is one of those where it's like, yes, Michael, yeah, the rumours are true. It has its own weather system. It has blocked out the sun. God, Shame was just laughable. It was a rubbish film, Shame. And I thought, and I had completely written him off as a filmmaker. Then 12 Years a Slave comes through and it's like, uh, what's this? It's amazing. That was a five-star film, I thought. The thing about 12 Years a Slave is that we all know about slavery, but it's one of those things that I'd never really looked into slavery and just the absolute horror of what slavery was. You know, it was awful, but the horror of a slave auction was really brought to life in that film and just things like that. It was quite an extraordinary film. So this is like a really good follow-up to that. The only thing that is disappointing, I would say about it, is one, and it's not really disappointing, but I could have done with another minute of the actual heist. Because the heist itself is really exciting, but I could have done with another minute of complication for the women. 
just to make it a little bit longer. And Queen's obviously a really technically experienced director, and there are lots of long takes, like the like the opening, the uh, the botched heist mm. is all done well, to a point essentially in one take. But it's not showy. It's not no. making it's not making a feature of it. Although there is some really big stunt work there, and it would be interesting to see how that was achieved, if that was achieved practically, or if it was done in some kind of post production. Yeah, but it is good though. Yeah. Um, in a way that I think probably the most, the most immediate compa- obvious comparison would be someone like Alfonso Cuarón, whose yeah. new film Roma was at the festival and is you know, getting rave reviews and will probably, by the sounds of it, win Best Foreign Language at the Oscars yes, and, 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 might, and might well be a Best Picture nom, yeah. which uh, we both ended up missing, although it is due on Netflix. It's due on Netflix quite soon, but it, I think that would be a good one to see in the cinema because yeah, despite think... it focusing on the life of a poor washerwoman, I think she is, in, in Rome, it does apparently have a certain sweep and majesty to it. And I think the Curzon are doing a limited theatrical release. So if you've got a Curzon cinema nearby, then check it out when it gets released. Only other thing about Widows that I thought was disappointing was that In 1983, so 35 years ago, it was seen as quite revolutionary to have a crime series headed up by women. And in 2018, it's seen as quite progressive to have a crime movie headed up by women. How far we've come. How far we've come. Even though, of course, there was a great one in, I think, made in 96 called Set It Off, which was about four black women who have to do a heist because they're in such dire economic straits that they try to rob a bank. And that's a bit of a forgotten film now, but that's a really good film. But yeah, it just shows that how far we've come. There was a there was a trend of quite good, of crime gen- generally quite good crime films this year. Yeah. So shall we quickly zip through a couple of them? So, Destroyer. Sorry. <laughs> oh. Appropriately, just before talking about crime films, Rob paused to do some gack. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Actually, I might leave that in there okay. because it sounds like that. Yeah, just got to. They power through, so chops out a big fat line of yayo. <laughs> it's not the only thing that I'm taking right now is Lemsip. Destroyer, which stars Nicole Kidman in quite an amazing performance. I've spent my whole life scrapping. Jealous, hungry, scared. I want to find something decent. Something good. It's a very generic crime film. It's a solidly made crime film. So she plays a woman who is a detective, but at one point was an FBI agent, who has been haunted by a job that went wrong about 17 years earlier or something like that. This assignment that they were given that her and her partner, played by Sebastian Stan, were given, it was to infiltrate a crime gang that's headed up by Toby Kebbell, who is a bit of a Charles Manson-type figure. He's uh, clearly quite mad. Yeah, something goes completely wrong, and it kind of flashes back to show them in this gang, and then you begin to piece together exactly what's happened. And there's something from the past has returned, and she's trying to figure out exactly what's happening now and how it ties into her past. I thought it was really strong, and I thought that Nicole Kidman was really strong in it. She, I think, is going to be getting notices because she looks so awful in the present-day scenes. And in the... Flashback scenes, they use a little bit of CGI to make her look a bit younger than she is now, but it's still a really good performance, and I think that it was actually quite a subtle use of CGI. And a lot of it is makeup in the present-day scenes, but she almost looks like one of the Walking Dead with her sallow skin and and her sunken eyes and just how zombie-like she looks. I found quite shocking when the film started, and a lot of people have criticised the film for that, saying she just looks like 
like a really dirty person who needs a good wash. I thought there was more to it than that. I also thought that the actual story of what it was about was was much more interesting than I thought it would be. And it's directed by... Karen Kasama? Yeah, who did The Invitation, which was a small indie film which is on Netflix and is well worth a look. It's about a man who's had some trouble in his past, is invited to, I think, his brother's house for a dinner party with their friends. And much like in Destroyer, something in the past has happened that affects the present and you begin to find out what's happened. And it's a really unusual film and very, very good. And I would say that Destroyer is the same. How about you? I didn't see Destroyer. I didn't see it. I I had rehearsals. But one film that we did see together and kind of ties into the podcast is the new one by S. Craig Zala and of course Bone Tomahawk was a film that we talked about on our first episode we talked about Brawl in Cell Block 99 last year when we did the London Film Festival review last year and his new one was on this year yeah um, starring well of all people Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn who of course he worked with on uh, Brawl and, and it's called uh, it is called Dragged Across Concrete. The opportunity was there. I wanted to work with Vince again. He loved the script for Dragged Across Concrete. Uh, connected uh, connected uh, Mel Gibson and myself. We had really good talks. He understood the character and the piece and where it was coming from. And we were just off to the races. So I finished uh, doing quality control on Brawl and Cell Block 99. And then five days later, I was in, I was in Vancouver doing uh, movie number three. Yeah. Though, unlike in Brawl, you never actually see anybody well, literally dragged across concrete because S. Craig Zahler is known for his pretty brutal, shocking violence. And this film, although it had a couple of gnarly moments, didn't really live up. I just didn't, didn't really live up to the hype in that or generally, I'd say. I think you're right. This is a weird film, this, because it's two hours and 40 minutes long, and I really enjoyed it, but I think he <laughs> might be writing himself into a bit of a cul-de-sac with his chosen themes right now. So Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn played two hard-bitten cops called Brett Ridgeman and Anthony Lorissetti. They are caught on camera being quite rough with a suspect and get suspended. Much like in Widows, they have money issues, so they are looking to do something that is outside the law. That gets them tied up into a bigger thing that's happening in their city. And it's a really enjoyable film to watch for the most part. A large part of that is because Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn are really good together as partners. The writing's very good. But for me, I thought it opens up really interesting in terms of what, where the line is in terms of where does crime prevention become police brutality? What does it mean to be caught on camera in today's trial by media age? And also there's lots of things around Mel Gibson's meta baggage in terms of the things that he's been caught saying on recorded calls and things like that that also seem to feed into this film as well. It also has something to say about gentrification and societal collapse as well, all within the first half hour. Then it seems to lose interest in that and become much more interested in just telling a pretty compelling but pretty standard crime story over the next two hours. It's very slick, it's very well made... But I thought, ultimately I was thought, yeah, that was good, but I just think that he needs to maybe try something else now because, yeah, that wasn't as good as your last two films. And I think that you might get caught in your tropes and ticks the same way that Tarantino did, maybe. Yeah, I heard somebody at the festival say that this was essentially like Zala's Jackie Brown in terms of trying to tamp things down a bit. It's very much a genre throwback. It's sort of a very hard-boiled 70s sort of detective cop story yeah it just, it just never trans- managed to really transcend those tropes in no. a way that I feel that both um, Tomahawk and Brawl 
do. Those films, despite having, again, some really occasionally hard-to-watch violence in there, never felt mean-spirited in the way that this occasionally did. Yeah, particularly one moment. There's one moment, and I won't spoil it, it feels even worse than if it was in a lesser movie, because it shows how quickly Zala can write and establish a compelling character. And there is a character here who is pretty well established in an economic amount of time, and then is disposed of in a really, really horrible way. Like, really horrible. And I thought, well, you haven't earned this. And I'm not sure what you're trying to say with this. It's just kind of there for the shock value. It was, and it's like, do you feel the need to put this in to please the fans that like the hardcore gore in your films? Because when we saw Brawl last year, there was howls of laughter at just how outrageous the violence was. But this time, when this particular moment happened, there was just a stunned silence and someone just said, Jesus! That was the correct reaction to that. It was like, I'm sorry, but no. This is a very narrow ultimately not very interesting road and, that you might be going down. And the fact that Zala sets up the idea that um, Ridgeman and Lorissetti are essentially honest cops, and the fact that Ridgeman's just been worn down and made coarse by years of, well, dragging concrete, by shuffling concrete, of, of just being on the job, and his and his daughter keeps getting assaulted or, you know, intimidated in the neighbourhood, and his wife, he's played by Laurie Holden, she's a former cop with MS who kind of, you know, laments, oh, I never used to be racist before we lived in this neighbourhood. And the film, if not... Again, it's a throwback, so you do occasionally expect the attitudes to be slightly retrograde, even if ironically so. But, yeah, the, there's a scene where he talks with Don Johnson, who's his former partner now, now the lieutenant, their, their boss. And Don Johnson saying, oh, you know, these good cops getting caught on camera and all it takes is something out of context. And watching that and being like, to what extent is, is, this, just a, is this just an interesting thing to have in your film? And to what extent does Zala really believe this? Yeah, there didn't really seem to be a lot of opinion or any desire to say anything in this film. But a film that I thought was much more successful and was much more sedate and restrained but more enjoyable was The Old Man and the Gun. The new David Lowry film. Which apparently, well, it was being touted as the final screen appearance by Robert Redford. He has now, I think, completely backtracked on that. And he is going to be in other films. It It could be his last lead role. And it would be, you know, in any case, like a perfect swan song for him because it does pay homage to so much of what's gone before. He plays a bank robber called Forrest yeah. Tucker. So, uh, what did you say you do? Well, that's a secret. And why is that? Well, because if I told you, you probably wouldn't want to see me again. Who said I was going to see you again? Would you? Well, let's take this place. Say it was a bank. And instead of that counter up there, that was really a teller's window. And you just walk in, real calm. So you walk right up, look her in the eye, and you say, ma'am, this is a robbery. And you show her the gun, like this. And you say, I wouldn't want you to get hurt, because I like you. I like you a lot. So don't go breaking my heart now, okay? (sighs) You're not serious. He's based on a real-life person. Yeah. Uh, who's who's a septuagenarian, and but yet he he, he looks a lot younger. He's you know, he's craggy and bright eyed, and essentially doing what he loves has kept him young, and that just happens to be robbing banks. And he does so with such charm and panache that the people he holds up they they really quite like him. They don't they're scared under the circumstances, but he he just conducts himself incredibly breezily and incredibly well. He's a gentleman. Thief, he, he's a gentleman he? thief, yeah. and and the story the film's in part a love story about him and a character played by Sissy Spacek Jewel. called Jewel. Yeah. First 
meets on the side of the road when she's broken down. She's folksy. She owns horses. She's she's a, she's a widow. Um, and it's also about his uh, his partnership with two characters, one played by Danny Glover and another by Tom Waits. There, there's a shaggy dog feel to the film. It's definitely not high stakes. It's probably one of the lower stakes. Well, it's, it's it's a heist movie. It is, but it's one of those where you I mean you don't see the heist. There's a couple of car chases in this film. But it's much more focused on the characters and it's much more focused on just the joy of living your life the way that you live it as long as it doesn't hurt others. He doesn't ever fire his gun and someone says, I could believe if he told me that he never fired his gun. And the way that he revitalises the characters around him, including John Hunt, who is played by Casey Affleck. And the detective's name was actually John Hunt, so he could only ever be a cop, right? He's quite jaded, he's getting a bit disillusioned with the job, and this gives him a new lease of life to try and actually track this guy down. Because the heist, you don't see the heist, but you see John Hunt arguing with with the bank worker about how to use the camera footage to wind back and forth on his video. Because it's set in 1981, of course, isn't it? So that was new technology then and there is this golden elegiac feel to it that, 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 it looks that, like an old film that, doesn't it yeah the, 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 on, the, on the grain and um, and there's that which Lowry brings to a lot of his films so it was that it was there in uh, Pete's Dragon which of course which I haven't seen he, uh, which is great and he worked uh, with Redford in that yes and then last year he worked with Casey Affleck in A Ghost Story which was one of my films of the year and he also worked with him on Ain't Them Brothers Saints Ain't Them Brothers which was his first film which was very Malick inspired right uh, so therefore it also, it all sort of ties together because it therefore makes sense one, well, one of many reasons why Sissy Spacek is in this film because yeah. she was of course in Badlands and that's the thing is that it seems like an end of career film or like a yeah, late stage career film for both of them because of course Redford his most famous role or one of his most famous roles was as the Sundance Kid in Butch Cassidy and of course he was also in The Sting as well when he, you could argue he played a gentleman thief in that too he was also in The Chase yeah so he's played a lot of memorable criminals and so it seemed only right to have him play a memorable criminal in this film as well and to see Spacek yeah just to return to an early career making role for her but I do like the fact that it Suggest that if you are going to hang out with somebody or if you're going to spend your time and dedicate a huge amount of your life to somebody who is, to be honest, just a compulsive thrill seeker, that isn't going to always be great for you. There is an element that there is there is shading to how he's affected people's lives. Yeah, there's there's been there's collateral damage. He's not definitely not a saint. No, that's right. Even beyond the bank robbing. Yeah. But bank robbery, I mean, it is good the way that he just goes in and is very, very polite but quite firm with them. Yeah, I thought it was a blast. I mean, I just really enjoyed the film. And, uh, yeah, and David Larry, I mean, he is a versatile director because A Ghost Story, I didn't think, was the masterpiece. A lot of people thought it was, but I thought it was a very interesting film. You would never guess this is by the same director as that no. film. I mean, he can turn his hand to different moods and atmospheres in his films. And at what, 95 minutes? Uh, 93. 93. <laughs> Should we talk about Out of Blue now? Yes, another film by a director whose you know whose previous work, um, Carol Morley, I I think is great. The Falling was one of my top films of 2015. Although I know various people who disagree, it's a divisive film. The Falling, and it's perhaps revealing that the first thing I said after leaving the screening of Outer Blue was, "Well, Rob, Rob can." Yeah, so uh, I haven't seen The Falling. I am going to watch it. My learned colleague gave it five stars. I have heard from other people, our friend Adrian, uh, said that he didn't think it was a five-star film. He thought it was definitely not a five-star film. But anyway, so I need to watch it. We walked out of Outer Blue, and I was thinking, what if Rob liked that film? Because I did not like Outer Blue. And the first thing that Rob said to me was, maybe The Falling's not as good as I thought it was. (laughs) I will watch The Falling. 
but out of blue. Tony, did you know that your nose could come from a different star than your hand? And that we're all here because a star died? Ain't against God to believe that. It's not a belief. It's fact. I don't buy it. I thought you believed you were a bit of a star. 70s star. You're one to talk, Joan Jett. So Out of Blue is about a cop played by Patricia Clarkson. And Patricia Clarkson is one of those great actresses who all too rarely gets a lead role. So I was really quite looking forward to this because she plays a cop, it's a lead. I think that she's a very good, watchable actress. She play, And she's called Michael Houlihan. And she, again, it's it kind of has some links with Destroyer. It's about her past ties into a lot of who she is now. But she's investigating a murder of a prominent astrophysicist uh, who has been shot in the head in a observatory. And she has to piece together why this has happened. Does it have anything to happen, uh, to do with the huge amount of red herring characters around? I mean, there are a lot of characters. Well, every single male in this film, apart from her partner, is pretty sus. Yeah. So there's Toby Jones. Is he's a twitchy professor? And there's her boyfriend. I can't actually remember who plays him. But um, and there's James Khan, who's her dad. And there's like a gallery of people. Yeah, but her boyfriend, whose first line is when you're about hearing she's when she's she's been killed, been murdered, is why, which is immediately suspect. Uh, and her dad, who plays you know again played by James Khan, who's the colonel and the colonel feels a bit like general sternwood from the big sleep and ex-military big house figures are always symbols of corruption and the film gets so lost in all i mean it opens in deep space around like you know orbiting around a dying star and then sort of zooms over to earth and down to the observatory in new orleans and patricia clarkson you know even she, uh, the character of mike Houlihan, who i'm guessing might even have been male in the original novel by martin amis no he wasn't really yes, well, it yes was, i checked that it was always yeah because it's based on a book called night train by martin amis and i checked that to see if it was actually a man and they just changed it but I hadn't changed the name but it was always a woman there's certain things in the book that sound much more interesting and much more sensible the, the, the film's the story so than the film the film's so prosaic because it wants to be at least my, my, my opinion a deconstruction of certain traits of certain tropes to do with the detective genre the examination of the crime scene and these objects that recur and seem to disappear in her own and you know Houlihan is an unreliable narrator there's sort of strands of pinching in there yeah and um, but on film, it's just lifeless. I mean, it feels like um, it reminded me of points of like Mulholland Drive. It's shot like a soap opera or, or like a police crime procedural. To, to the extent that you keep waiting for the other shooter drop to be the thing. Oh, where's the point that where, like Lynch? You're going to flip it. You're going to find something dark and nightmarish underneath. And the film just never really does. No, even when it begins to go into her past, and because of course she also has blackouts and she's a former and, alcoholic and she's right. got amnesia from her childhood. And she, as a character, she is just an enigma. And enigmas are not... Oh, no, firstly, they're not easy to play. And they're not always... Interesting. Interesting. Particularly if the film around them has nothing to say at all about anything. And the astrophysics stuff. And there are things about metaverses in there. Schrodinger's cat comes up. She's... A, an amazing detective, but has never heard of Schrodinger's cat. It's like, well, everyone. To the extent the film explains cat. what Schrodinger's cat is three times, and then never really pays that off. No, it doesn't. Such a misfire, and it is boring. It is one of those where it just plods along, and I don't think it was that badly shot. I thought it was pretty well shot. That's really the only thing that it's got going for it, apart from 
Clarkson's performance because it is a committed performance, but the film has no idea what to do with her, so therefore it just ends up going around in circles. It goes on and on and on, and it threatens to end a couple of times, and you're thinking, oh yeah, fine, just end here, that'll be shit, and then it doesn't, and it goes on, and it does kind of try to resolve itself, but it's no less poor than if it had ended you know, on one of those earlier occasions. It would be interesting to see what Karen Morley does next because I can't see this one really doing anything it's, for it's, her. It's a film that, looking at the reviews by The Hollywood Reporter and Variety, they were all so unwilling to condemn it. As you know, as a film by an interesting female director with a talented female lead, and they were like, oh, you know, I can't say I enjoyed it, but I'm glad it existed. I'm glad it exists. And Which just felt so mealy-mouthed. It is, it is. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, yes... Interesting female director. And it was one of those things where there were a lot of films this year that at the LFF that were directed by female I think directors. almost 50%. Yeah, it was, I, um, I think it was like a record year for that. But the thing there is that you have to be able to say that some of them are, are not very good. Yeah, it did seem mealy mouth to say, well, it might not completely achieve what it sets out to do, but I'm glad it exists. It's like, no, there is no need for this. <laughs> this film didn't work. Not like Destroyer worked, which is by a much more interesting director. So I suppose that Outer Blue was striving for some kind of indie cred, but there were much more interesting indie films this year at the LFF, headed up by a film that I think is a contender for the Mad as Arseholes Electric Shadows Award for this year. Sorry finally, we finally have one. We finally have one. Sorry to Bother You is as mad as Arseholes. I just really need a job. Already on two. This is telemarketing. Stick to the script. Hey, hello. Um, Mr. Davison, cash is green here. Sorry to buy. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm never talking about Will Smith's wife. Thank this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. It is a film by Boots Riley, who is an artist. He's a hip-hop artist as well. And... He wrote this script back in 2012. He couldn't get it made then, so he made an album with his then hip-hop outfit called The Coup, an album called Sorry to Bother You that was basically kind of the story of this film, but it was it was turned to song. He's finally got the money to make it. If this is the script that he wrote back then, then he should be playing the lottery every week because he can foresee the future. It is a film that I suppose is best described as Brazil meets office space. There's a bit of idiocracy in there. There is. And it's kind of got almost got the tone of a Charlie Kaufman film. I think you mentioned Being John Malkovich. Yes, indeed. It, um, it does have some being John Malkovich in there as well. It, so it's about a guy called Cash, ironically named Cash, who again needs money. He's in Financial Dire Straits. He's played by Lakeith Stanfield, who you would recognise from the beginning of Get Out and is also in Atlanta and he's a very good actor. He gets a job in, in a telemarketing firm. He just wants to make some money so that he can support him and his girlfriend, played by Tessa Thompson. He then goes on a journey that mm. is... It's very hard to talk about without spoiling some of the surprises of the film. And we're not going to spoil the really big surprises. But it's one of those films that, at the beginning, it starts off with a very amusing job interview. The end of the film, it's like, my God, how did we get from that to that? What... An amazing journey that has its own internal logic to get from that space to that space and is so amazing. I mean, it's freewheeling. And it, it is. It, and, it's, and it's packed with stuff like, you know, Stephen Ewan plays a, a, um, a guy, a union, org- like a Robin Hood union organiser who kind of go, goes where he's needed. Yes, and is calling for um, strike action within the company that 
he works for, which Regal. is Regal View. And uh, you've got Army Hammer as this Birkenstock-wearing, self-appointed messiah, messianic CEO. Who is basically Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs, who has created this company... What's it called again? Worry-Free. Worry-Free. Yes, and they... And it's a company where you go and they will look after you for the rest of your life if you sign a lifetime contract and they will give you exactly what you need and you need uh, need to worry about bills. Basically indentured servitude. But it's indentured servitude. And it's about the corporatization of everything, about how you are not seen as an actual person but just another cog in this big machine. And he plays, and Army Hammer is absolutely amazing in it as well. All the actors are great because they all know exactly what film they're in and they know the tone of it and the tonal shifts that are brought in. And it's amazingly colourful. The film just has this really oversaturated use of colour to suggest that this is real life. But it's ever so slightly removed, but we might be approaching there really quite quickly. And just how insane the world is every single morning you wake up is the world that's being predicted within this film. And yeah, I thought it was an absolutely fantastic look at where we are now, the same way that Brazil, when it came out, seemed to be fantasy. Now, Brazil, actually, you realise a lot of Brazil just came true. So Yeah, especially you know, if you spend any time working in a large corporation. Yeah. Given I wasn't able to see um, the man who killed Don Quixote. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, um, this was a pretty good substitute for a Gilliam film. Sorry, substitute's unfair because Boots Riley's definitely got his own voice and his own style. Yeah, but he did have that same kind of unfettered imagination. Just delirious creativity. Yes. Yeah, delirious creativity is a great way to describe Sorry to Bother You. It has been criticised for being overlong. It comes in at just under two hours, having ideas that it doesn't fully explore or bring any kind of resolution to, which is... There are some subplots there that you that you can see have been cut down, but I thought actually for the major stuff and also for quite a few of the subplots, it did actually have some kind of resolution. It's just a film that says, if I only get a chance to make one film, I think that Bruce Riley has just put every single idea he's ever had into this one film, so it'd be interesting to see if his next film has anything to say, because it's like, well, have you said it all with this movie? That will be very interesting to see. And also, of course, it goes into reality TV culture and game show culture with that. I got, the shit, I got the shit kicked out of it. I got the shit kicked out of it. Which me. is very out my balls. Which yes, is, it is. Yeah, 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 and Terry Crews has a small role in it. Oh, that's right. Yes, he does, yeah. And it is genuinely laugh out loud funny. I mean, we laughed a lot in the film. It was... Yeah, I'm trying to think of any other films that may be consistently done. It wasn't... A, well, there were comedies. <laughs> I'm sure, uh, uh, there's, there's a whole laugh strand at the festival. I didn't attend that many of them. Because you always get drawn to the big movies at the LFF. And the big movies rarely tend to be comedies. They tend to be much more serious drama fair they tend to be Oscar fair and comedies don't normally get nominated for many Oscars but In Fabric was I thought a very good comedy and I know I liked it more than you did but um, so that's a new one by Peter Strickland who did the Duke of Burgundy and Bavarian Sound Studio this one is very much in that same vein of filmmaking it's a throwback to the style of 70s erotica particularly the films of Jean Roland and Jose Larraz and Jess Franco. You don't need to have seen any of those films to enjoy this film, but it would help you understand where it's coming from in terms of the slightly odd world view that he has, that Strickland has. It's a film that's set in the early 80s, or it seems to be the early 80s, maybe it's the mid-80s. Marianne Jean-Baptiste, who of course came to fame in Secrets well, and Lies, isn't she? she was... Is it the mid-80s? Because I'm sure somebody has used I'm sure mobile phones get used in it. No. Really? Don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just... 
Maybe I've just projected that onto it. If it's a mobile phone, it's a really big mobile phone. There's no mod cons. The only reason I think it's the mid-80s is because the washing machines huh. are a little bit later than the early 80s. So there's a character in there who is a washing machine repairman. And there's a running joke about people getting quite turned on by him talking about how a washing machine can break and then be mended. So it's that sort of film. But it's also a film about consumerism, about the joy of buying something and about the anticipation of buying something but also buyer's remorse, but it's done in a way that is much more suited to maybe Tales of the Unexpected or Hammer House of Horror and goes off into many, many different directions. If you've seen I, Duke of Burgundy, you'll know what to expect. I really like that the first half of the film, which I thought was more tonally balanced than the second, which got slightly broad in its comedy. I think you've got more experience. What was the catalogue that you talked about? Kay's catalogue. Kay's catalogue. It's basically... <laughs> How can you describe it? It's what the bra section of Cave Catalogue looked like when you were about eight years old. Um, so that's a good way to describe it. They didn't put that on the poster, though, which is surprising. <laughs> I thought, actually, that because it is two different stories, and I thought that both stories were very funny, and I thought had the same kind of tone to them. So Marianne Jean-Baptiste plays this woman... So her husband's left her, she's living with her son. Her son is not particularly grateful of the the effort that she's putting into raising him. He's about 18 or something like that. And she buys a red dress from this department store. And the department store is run by very glamorous but very odd European sales staff who... Speak incredibly grandiloquently. Yes, they do. And they're dressed in clothes that are very much not of the period... And kind of say that purchasing someone is an existential act, or um, purchasing a dress is an existential act for someone. But the thing that stops it being insufferably pretentious is the fact that it is actually very, very funny, I thought. And may I interest you in other desired supposes in our exclusive boutique? I'm fine for now, thank you. Then I would like you to announce your locus of residence, followed by the numbers to your telephone. Sheila Wallchapel. 16 Ferndale Road, Thames Valley on Thames, 01632 Thank you. The pleasure is all mine, Sheila Woolchapel. And it also looks absolutely amazing, and it's scored very well by... Can you remember the name of the band that did the score? Out of Fabric Film. So while we look that up, Gwendolyn Christie from Game of Thrones is also in this film, and she has an amusing role. It's a British film in its point of view and its humour, but is really imbued with the spirit of that 70s erotica, which I thought was great. Um, And it includes a credit for mannequin pubic hair... There's a sex scene, which is one of the most bizarre sex scenes you'll ever see, like, ever. And is quite explicit, and I think is the one scene that will get this film an 18. I don't think it's been rated yet, but it will be an 18. And the score was done by... Coward of Antimatter. Thank you. And it was a very good score. I thought this was good. Our friend Adrian said, I just don't know who that was made for. Were more of that opinion, maybe? I, no, I think I was, I think I was somewhere between the two of you. So you straddle the two of us. I stra- which like <laughs> lots of characters in this film. Yeah, it is. It is very fetishistic in terms oh, God, of, yeah. in, in, and as you say, the the very particular tone, the, uh, sort of evoking genre. Lan. I, I can't say I didn't enjoy it. 
I just... My enjoyment lessened. Basically, my enjoyment was pretty consistent throughout the first act, dipped in the second act, and then rose again for the climax. (laughs) Which is a perfect way to describe In Fabric. Well, let's go on to Mandy. I just want to do Mandy really, really quickly, because I've always been said about Mandy already. So Mandy, film by Panos Cosmatos, who is the son of George Pan Cosmatos, who directed First Blood. Well, hmm. It is a film about Nicolas Cage and Andrea Riceborough, who are a very happily married couple, although Nicolas Cage does seem to have something that's troubling him, but he finds peace with her in a cabin in the woods, and the first hour of the film is basically their kind of idyllic life intercut with a religious cult that's headed by Linus Roach, who plays Jeremiah, Jeremiah Sand, and you know the two are going to converge at some point. Mandy, played by Andrew Riceborough, is kidnapped and Nick Cage has to basically go on a rampage to get her. And I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but the first hour I thought was very good. And it's a film that is very much a feminine half and a masculine half. And the feminine half I thought was much more interesting. So the opening hour of the film has much more lyricism to it and, and uh, the editing is much more like, yeah, dissolves than hard cuts. It's much more, you could say, subjective. It kind of goes into mind states a lot more. And the second half, it goes into much more masculine, hard cuts. It's much more aggressive. It's much more abrasive. The only thing is, is that we've seen Nicolas Cage go on his rampages quite a lot now. And I thought that while it was fun to watch, it wasn't as interesting as what happened before. The film has developed a cult following and seems to be an instant cult classic for a lot of people. I thought it was really interesting, but the first half was better than the second half. But another film that I thought actually had a terrible first half and got better towards the end was Madeline's Madeline. Yes. This was your recommendation. <laughs> and I won't hold it against you. But it was a film that, my God, the opening of this film, I thought, this is terrible. I'm not going to walk out, but this is awful. And then by the end, I thought, well, that did actually have some interesting things to it. Yeah, it's um, it's basically a teen... It's not exactly a coming-of-age story, but it's by it was written and directed by uh, Josephine Decker. And it's about the character Madeline, played by... Uh, Molly Parker, I think, who is up for like various awards, like like uh, very it's various India India awards. Okay. Who's this teenage girl who you know raised by being raised by a single mum who I think is played by actually no I think it's Helena Howard who's Helena Howard who's nominated and Molly Parker who plays this 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 whole disassociative thing that we're doing with the uh, with the actors now is very representative of the film itself <laughs> um, because. Yes, it's Molly Molly Parker plays the drama teacher with whom Helena Howard gets involved with her drama troupe. And Helena Howard plays uh, Madeline, who is this uh, this teenage girl who experiences d- disassociative, almost occasionally borderline psychotic episodes, you know, mania and mood swings. And the film is very much shot like that. It's a film that, to start with, is so loose and so hazy and that it does become quite difficult to pin down. But then as it begins to go on, you begin to understand her relationship with the drama teacher, who is always talking about how talented Madeline is, but is really inadvertently exploiting that and doesn't necessarily understand the line between talent and mental illness. It does begin to cohere into a more interesting study of identity and self-awareness. And I didn't think it was quite on the level of the rave reviews it was it got from various sources, but I, uh, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, it was, it was one of those, I remember you telling me about it, because you, uh, you were telling me about it in the office, and you said that Ryan Johnson, the director of The Last Jedi, had tweeted a rave about it. Mm. And it's one of those that, I'm glad it exists. <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> no, it's one of those that, I'm glad I saw it. It opens up with 
a lot of actory things. So lots of acting classes and people in this acting class talking about the craft and doing these acting exercises. And you're not sure how sincerely it's all meant to be taken. And there's a lot of it. And it was pretentious and I didn't think that it actually... It was one of those where it didn't seem to be offering any kind of balance to its pretension. And I'm not entirely sure it does offer a lot of balance to its pretension overall. But the characters do become more interesting as they go on and the relationships become more interesting as they go on. The mum... Who plays the mum again? Miranda July. And I thought she was very good as well. The three main performances are very, very good in this film. And there is a scene late in the film that shows that Helena Howard is is a talent to be reckoned with. And I would much like, and I would like to see her in a much more conventional film to see her play a character that maybe isn't so extreme to see if she can do that because I think she's a very good actress. The film is pitched at almost sort of wounded hysteria throughout. That can become tiresome pretty quickly. But yeah, ultimately I thought it was better than I thought it was at the beginning. At the beginning I hated it. I really just hated it. I thought I hate this movie. It's quite interesting to see a film that you just actively... That you're, that you're like, I am not on the wavelength of whatever the fuck this is trying to do. No. And it reminded me of Harmony Corrine in some ways but I actually think... it. Actually reminded me a little bit of Julian Donkey Boy, which was a film that I saw at the LFF 19 years ago. And it stars Ewan Brenda as someone who has mental health issues. And it's just him and his family. It's very loose like this. It's just vignettes. It doesn't have a particularly propulsive plot. And it reminded me of this little bit. Um, and I think this is one of those films that... Yeah, I couldn't say that I like Julian Donkey Boy, but it stuck with me for 19 years. And there are certain moments of that film that I can remember very, very clearly. I only ever saw it once. This will be the same thing. And... So other films, just to quickly tick them off in terms of indie. So Dogman was the new one by Matteo Garoni, who did Gamora. And this one is about a guy who lives in a uh, a southern coastal town in Italy. He owns a dog kennel. He loves his dogs. He loves his daughter. He is quite diminutive in stature and is like a bit of a punching bag for a local thug called Simone who uses him as like a getaway driver for housebreaking and stuff like that. This guy, Marcello his name is, he's very good natured and he wants to do right by everyone which means that he does get into a lot of scrapes that actually... As I watched this I thought, my god, I can feel the film losing the audience. Although it's open to some very, very good reviews. But it seems to be one with the audience that I saw it with. And I agreed that there comes a point where you think, oh, God. Why is he such a... Stand up for yourself. Well, there are other people around you who can help you. Why are you insisting on letting this guy treat you in this way? Yeah, so ultimately I thought it was it was okay. But it yeah, certainly wasn't a great movie. But if we could get on to our great movies now, the ones that we thought were favourites of the festival, what would be a favourite of the festival for you? The favourite would, would definitely be up there. I, think I, I, I mentioned earlier the uh, new film by Yorgos Lanthimos. That I, I must say, for the sake of balance, my uh, my mate Liam Liam Fleming is in it in a notable role in one scene. Oh right, cool! And he actually has some lines. And he actually, yes, he actually has oh, some well, lines. Well, that's good. Um, uh, the film stars. Sorry, Liam. Uh, <laughs> uh, Olivia Coleman, Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz, Nicholas Holt. It's, it's a very impressive cast, and it's about the court of Queen Anne and particularly her relationship with her favourite, uh, Sarah Churchill, and uh, another favourite of hers, uh, Abigail Masham, played by Elizabeth Stone, who, no, Elizabeth Stone? Emma, who, Stone. Uh, Emma Stone, who, uh, who arrives at the court having fallen on hard times. Did you just look at me? Stop it! I am the Queen. But you are mad. Mm. 
look like a badger. I've sent for some lobsters. I thought we could race them and then eat them. I thought uh, Lanthimos's previous film... Oh, God. Oh, is it cool? It was called The Killing of a Sacred Deer. The Killing of a Sacred Deer was morose. I really liked The Lobster, although I thought that was a film with two halves as well. (laughs) Of two claws. Yeah, it should have been a pair of ragged claws. (laughs) That's another one for the uh, pretentious poetry. It's all good. Uh, And this was... It's shot in a grand stately home uh, somewhere in the UK uh, at Hatfield House in Hertfordshire. Oh, okay, right. And it's shot largely with fisheye lenses. Oh, really? And yeah, there is there is this sense of distortion to it, to all these this this grand setting that actually kind of makes it feel more present. And the cast, you know, including Nicholas Holt, are largely grotesque. You know, Holt's got a beauty spot and he's wearing a powdered wig and is very much a fop. But it is also about how all, under all the dirt and the grubbiness and the backstabbing, a lot, these, a lot of these people are deeply wounded in different ways. I mean, Olivia Coleman gives an absolutely standout performance, unsurprisingly, as Queen Anne, who does have a tremendous capacity for joy, but it can and is incredibly childlike in that. But it can just switch all of a sudden. And she'll like something which something will go and she'll and she'll be screaming and she'll be hysterical. Actually, that's a fair use of the word. Uh, but that is all coming from a profound loss and a profound grief. And meanwhile, you've got Emma Stone as Abigail Masham, who perhaps might not be the innocent that she initially seems, especially compared uh, and and Sarah Churchill, the Rachel Weiss favourite, who is very cool and composed and is quite good with a brace of uh, brace of pistols. Well, okay. And it yeah, it is it's a real it is a really interesting film that I I, re- I recommend and I think it's not impossible it may get a couple of Oscar noms. Well, if Twitter's anything to go by, and of course it is, sometimes sometimes in some spheres. Um, Olivia Coleman, everyone said, just give her the Oscar now. So I think she. They think in best actress or best supporting because I think she probably falls more into the best supporting category. Oh really? Oh yeah. right, because they say the, best actress. Really? Okay, that's uh, interesting. Oh, interesting. I mean, I haven't seen this one um, as I said earlier, but I am looking forward to seeing it. But yes, Olivia Coleman, they were saying like she's the best English actress of my generation. I am looking forward to seeing that, and it will be interesting to see what the noms are for that because I think there will be some. It will be interesting to see if Olivia Coleman is best supporting or best actress. Um, my other film of the festival was probably If Beale Street Could Talk, the new film by Barry Jenkins, who uh, won the Oscar for Moonlight. And it's an adaptation of a book. No, sorry, that was Lone Land. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah, we have... Uh, I, I, not, not in this podcast, but we didn't... Act, did, we have, did we end up talking about First Man? No. We'll have to save that for another day. Um, but, but the favourite stars? Emma Stone. Emma Stone. Uh, who was in the Oscar winning La La Land. It won Best Actress. <laughs> and Best Director. Did it? I think it won Best Director. Oh, okay, yes, that seems... Well, anyway, it didn't win but... Best Picture, because that went to Moonlight, which was directed by Barry and Jenkins. Could... He got a new film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's called If Beale Street Could Talk. It's based okay. on a book by James Baldwin, and it is about a family living... Uh, I think they're living on, on Beale Street, that would make sense. We are drinking to new life. Tish gonna have Fanny's baby. <laughs> I hope it's a boy. <laughs> Come on over here, daughter. You're a good girl, and I'm proud of you. Don't you ever forget it. And who's going to be responsible for this baby? The father and the mother. When I hold you in my arms, I got to hold our baby in my arms. We'll find a way. Essentially, it's a, it's a portrait of their lives, of this, this young couple, Tish and Fonny, played by Kiki Lane and Stephen James, both of whom could very easily get a nomination. 
sort of flashes back to their childhood and with voiceover and it's had this easy loving way with each other but the world is is bent against them right and the film largely takes place in flashback revealing how the characters came to be in these positions and it's an astonishing cast you know um uh you've got regina king and common domingo as trish's parents and 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 you get you get characters uh, characters like finn whitrock and diego luna pedro pascal dave franco all turning oh, wow, up in, okay. in tiny supporting roles and there is a set there is that that's the same sense of transcendence even you know while you're depicting quite hard things that went into moonlight there is a real texture and a real life to it and the sense of the world beyond these characters while never losing the intimacy and I think that you know Nicholas Brutel's score, which is very, which is jazz infused, and James Laxton's cinematography. I think they're both likely to you know get to get some awards uh, awards buzz. And it's just it's one of those films. It's a uh, hundred and fifty a hundred and fifteen minutes. I think it's just slightly under two hours, and yet it really doesn't feel it. it. It just kind of floats by. And again, Brian Tyree Henry's in it, yeah. playing in this scene where he plays one of Fonny's old mates, who he's just he, he bumps into on the street, and is just so glad to see him because there's a sense that, that you know they've both been through things together, and that there aren't many of their people from the young people from their generation who are still around. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I do need to see it. I mean, I wasn't as absolutely in love with Moonlight as you were, but I did think it was an impressive film. And again, it seems this is someone who who deals with time very interestingly, because Moonlight, of course, had some very big temporal jumps throughout the life of this character. And this one sounds like it does interesting things with time as well. And it's yeah, it's one of the, uh, I think Barry Jenkins, like a few other directors, is a master of the close up. And it helps that you know he he obviously picks incredibly talented, versatile actors. But yeah, the ability to just hold on someone's face for an extended period of time and just watch the subtleties play out play, play across it, and it's an incredible film. And I'm sure it'll do very well. Excellent. Okay, well, we'll just go through the two that I thought were most impressive at the NFF this year, and then we'll go on to the closing film. The so, first of your film, of course, being uh, being one that I didn't see, that I, uh, I mentioned briefly, but in that I saw it, I was seeing Dragged Across Concrete at the time of the official screening, you were able to see it outside of the the, 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 the flow of LFF. Yes, but I'm not going to talk about that yet. Oh, you're going to talk about the other <laughs> I'm one. I'm going to tease, tease it out. <laughs> so, the other one is They Shall Not Grow Old, which is Peter Jackson's new film. And it is a documentary, or it's archive material about World War One, And it basically takes the viewer through all of World War One. So the outbreak of World War One and recruitment through basic training. Life in the trenches. Life in the trenches, yeah. So you then go over to France. It's then life in the trenches and warfare during World War One, And then the armistice and uh, the return home and how the soldiers were treated when they returned home. It's told with archive interviews from 
men who fought during the war. Yeah, just lots of snippets, one after another, sort of layering and building up an impression of, all, right. of all these stories and what life was like. And it's like a tapestry of history. The thing that it's done that is really interesting, and it sounds really bad, but actually it's done very well, is that Jackson has taken the footage and he's colorized it and made it 3D, which, when dealing with archive footage, I think you have to be very, very careful with that sort of thing because you could be accused of changing history. But I thought that this was done very well. It was the process of a lot of work over a lot of years, and it in, in does actually... the centenary, of course. And it's on the centenary, and what it does is it almost erases the 100 years between the end of World War One and now because the footage is so clear and it's so vivid... And the people are literally brought, well not literally brought to life, but they are brought to life in front of you because you, I think for the first time, can really see the faces. And you can hear them too. That's right. So they got lip readers in to read the lips of what the people were saying in this archive footage and then got actors to uh, to voice them. And, and created a soundscape behind it as well in terms of, in terms of the wheels of carts and yeah, the feet in so the mud get... and, the, and, the, and the explosions of you know, the shells going off. It's all done in... or 7.1, so the explosions really have a concussive kind of whoomp to them that you don't get in archive footage because, of course, it was all shot silently. And, yeah, I thought it was one of those uh, that made World War I more immediate than I'd seen in archive footage before. I did read a really interesting review that I think all of our listeners should go and read on a website called Silent London, which is a blog that is all about silent movies, and is very good, and they did criticise it uh, for cropping the image, so it's cropped to a more widescreen image from the original square that it was shot in, and the colourisation comes in for some criticism in terms of some liberties that Peter Jackson and his film crew must have taken in terms of kind of guessing the colour of some of the houses and things like that, the uniforms they could research, the hair colour and things like that would be approximations of what they were, the houses would be approximations of what they were. So you could argue that you think you're seeing something real, but you're not. But I thought actually that it was that the restoration and the colorization and the 3Dification has been done so carefully and so meticulously. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like you you assume best efforts and you and you kind of take for granted that it's not going to be entirely perfect. It's not going to be exact because you know it. You but know it that it's been colorized. Though. Yeah, it's just it's, it's 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 respectful. I think it's something that could definitely use as an educational tool. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not. It doesn't. If you know a little bit about the First World War, it's probably you might not. Le- you're not going to learn anything new outside, but you are going to get a real experience of it through the personal accounts and through yeah, again seeing the colorized footage. As you say, it really peels back the years and is able to kind of immerse you. And I thought it's one of those that a lot of the voiceover was quite surprising. So it opens up with a lot of the soldiers saying that actually, even though they did see horrible things and they endured a lot of hardship, the war actually had some some good memories for them. It made them a man and they had relationships and they had a bond, a brotherhood that they never experienced at any other time in their life. Of course, you know, World War One was a, was a total catastrophe and a completely needless war, but it was interesting to hear the soldiers talking about it in that way. And it, and it did have some things that I hadn't really heard about World War One before that were quite surprising. So, yeah, I thought it was great. It's also interesting, obviously, that, um, that Peter Jackson's obviously has such an interest in the First World War, you know, to the extent of making... Because he, he's best known for adapting Lord of the Rings. Yes. And Tolkien, of course, um, served on the front. And a lot of people have read... Middle Earth, as to some extent, being being an allegory about those experiences and about the state of Europe. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, you know, and the, it's also the it's the fantasy 
because of course in Lord of the Rings all the main players survive and it's the fantasy that all his friends got to return home when of course in real life they didn't he lost friends There's, there are lots of shots colorized shots and bodies in it and really quite horrific wounds mm. that are more the more striking when when they're in color yeah when they're and the gangrene is <laughs> awful but uh, and also the fact that the trench warfare was so awful that because of the rains and things like that and um, the stench of death <clears throat> just and you could be sucked into slime into the mud and just not come up suffocate yeah. yeah you could be sucked under and not be able to come up and if you tried to pull someone out you could be sucked in as well and things like that I thought wow I've not seen this in a World War One film yeah I thought it was a great movie and it's dedicated to his grandfather isn't it who was a soldier in World War One and the other film of the festival for me was Suspiria <laughs> oh really I, I hear it's rubbish yeah <laughs> Sorry, I I get to the end and then I die before I can talk about Suspiria. And then Rob afterwards say he didn't really like it, he thought it was shit. <laughs> Suspiria? I hear it's rubbish. <laughs> when you dance the dance of another, you make yourself in the image of its creator. So, listeners of our LFF preview episode will remember that I had a lot of trepidation about... Luca Guadagnino's adaptation of Dario Argento's masterpiece, Suspiria. Yeah, it's right. <laughs> it's a 1977 film, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, is it? And basically, it's going to bait Rob until it expires. Yeah, that's right, yeah, until I, I completely collapse. Anyway, Suspiria is a remake that has been long in gestation, and lots of people have had a go at it, at trying to crack the movie, including David Gordon Green, who abandoned the project and went on to do the latest Halloween movie, which is also a successful sequel kind of remake of the original. So Suspiria just seemed like a fool's errand to try and remake this film. But actually, I was watching it, and again, so Adrian is getting a lot, a lot of shout-outs on this, but he was one of our LFF compadres. It was very good and took me to a BAFTA screening, so I could also see Dragged Across Concrete. So I went to see it, and I was thinking, okay, my mind is open, let's see what's happening here, and it was really surprising. I thought, wow, so the way that Argento's film is about adrenalised panic and has the the visual look of adrenalised panic, uh, this one is more about decay and sickness and like a, a damp evil. It's set during... It's set, a damp <laughs> evil. <that's> yes. my... <laughs> it's set in 1977, so the year that the original was released. In Berlin, it is pretentiously, you could argue, described in the opening credits as a film in six acts and an epilogue. It actually is divided into acts, so it comes in act one, and it and all have different chapter names. It stars Dakota Johnson as Susie Banyan, who is an American dance student who goes over to Berlin to dance at this academy that's run by Tilda Swinton. She doesn't know that it's run by witches, and Tilda Swinton is one of the witches. And... It does follow the basic plot of Suspiria and does some nice things with the basic plot of Suspiria to work it into the framework of this film. But it's much more open about the fact that it's been run by witches. 
you find out very early on that that's the case. And Dakota Johnson, who I think I've ever seen a film with her in it, because I've not seen any of the Fifty Shades films. I've seen bits of them, and they look fucking awful. But she is absolutely fantastic in this movie, and she really carries the film. Tilda Swinton is also great in this movie, and Chloe Grace Moretz has a small role in this as a student who seems to know what's going on, and also stars Mia Goth, and she's trying to find out what's going on in this weird dance academy. And she was in A Cure for Wellness, which we saw a couple of years ago, which was another film that was two and a half hours long, and it was a big epic horror film, but was shit. Yeah, she was in that, and she is much better in this. She's got a much more interesting character. And it's it's one of those, it kind of reminded me of The Shining. It's not as good as The Shining. It's not as good as the original Suspiria. It doesn't disgrace itself in being a remake. It does have a few kind of proper horror moments in there. But mainly it's just really, really creepy and just has this really great atmosphere of dread about it that it sustains for pretty much the entire running time. The only thing that I thought wasn't really successful about the film was that the uh, the climax it kind of goes batshit crazy and i thought that the, that the tonal shift there just didn't work and i thought oh, well you've kind of spoiled a lot of the good work that you've done earlier i need to watch it again to see if i agree with that still but yeah i didn't think that the ending was as good as it could have been and i thought actually you are better at doing dread than you are at doing batshit crazy but it kind of brings it back to the epilogue the epilogue actually does make the film much more satisfying than if it had ended with that climax so uh so yes and i can't wait to see it again and that was suspiria which was the biggest surprise of the festival as well because in I... that it was rubbish yeah <laughs> but still better than the original film that's what i'm getting right yeah, that's right yes <laughs> see he knows i'm so weak right now that it's all of my effort just to say what i thought of the film but i can't he's, he's, i can't he's, match he's just a newborn him. kitten i'm just i like... can't match wits with you today rob <laughs> It's, you are shooting fish in a barrel. But anyway, yeah, so um, Suspiria is well worth a look. It's out in November. So let's quickly go on to the closing film, which is one that I really want to see, Stan on Ollie. Yeah, uh, which is, strangely enough, about... <laughs> <laughs> about Suspiria. Yeah. It's about this woman who joins a dance academy yeah. from by witches. Close. Um, <laughs> it's about Stan Laurel, uh, well, the uh, sort of the final... Hazard of Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, the legendary comedy double act, here played by Steve Coogan and John C. Riley. It sounds like great cast. Yeah, and it's directed by uh, John S. Baird, who I mostly know for Filth, which is the film that he directed, the uh, uh, the Irvine Welsh adaptation with James McAvoy. And this is something of a different tone. And action! Hollywood legends Mr. Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy arrived in Britain today as they embarked on a national tour. We're doing this while we're waiting for this new picture to come together. I'm going to make sure that this tour gets off on the right foot. There it is, the Eiffel Tower. (laughs) It's amazing that you two are still going strong, still using the same old material. There they are. Such a wonderful reception, isn't it, Ida? It's okay. Two double acts for the price of one. Yeah, it's a really sweet, sad BBC Sunday afternoon type film about Laurel and Hardy's last tour uh, through the UK during the theatre circuit 
and their relationship and the sort of the love, the evident love and affection that they had for each other, but the resentment that had built up over time over this perceived betrayal many years before, which they, the film does flash back to. And it's just, it's very light and it's suitably comedic. They really enact a couple of the famous Laurel and Hardy sketches in some of the in some of the films. And the performances are, are uniformly great. Steve Coogan as Laurel being quite tight and bird-like and, um, and John C. Riley being much bigger and bluffer as, as Hardy. And you've also got uh, Rufus Jones as Bernard Delphont of Delphont Macintosh fame, the uh, the theatre impresario who's just comes who's just deeply disingenuous, and <laughs> and uh, Danny Houston as Hal Roach. Oh wow! And uh, and sorry, and just sorry, cut to cut off there. Uh, Shirley Henderson as Lucille Hardy as Hardy's wife, and uh, Nini Ariande as Ida Kiteva Laurel, as as uh, Delphont puts it himself at one point. You, know, you get two double backs for the price of one, <laughs> and you know Henderson you know, Hardy, who's Hardy's wife, who's quite bird-like and quite fussy, and uh, then you've got Ida, who is you know much more controlling, but only because she deeply loves Stan, and you know, every time he gets a drink, she'll drink it. So, it kind of suggests that they married their. <laughs> they, they oh, mar- the yeah, they there. married there. Yeah, the yeah, exactly. There's, there is that that neat suggestion to it, and it's just you know, it's what my mum would call a nice film. Well, I asked you if this was a BBC film, and you said you couldn't remember if BBC put money into it, but it was a BBC film. Yes. So I think it's one of those. I think I know what it's going to be. Yes, BBC. Uh, looking now, looking at the Wikipedia page, did put money into it. If it is just a very nice story about Laurel and Hardy with John C. Riley and Steve Coogan playing Laurel and Hardy. Or Hardy and Laurel. Yeah, I'm alright with that. I'll watch that. That sounds really nice. I am looking forward to seeing it, yeah. To wind it back to the beginning, so we were talking about the Oscar noms. Um, Golden Globe noms, I think. If there's, if think so, they'll right. get BAFTA noms. I, okay. I'd be very surprised if they didn't at least get, sorry, at least get BAFTA noms completely devaluing <laughs> yeah. the, main, the main awards body in, our, in the, of the United Kingdom. Um, no, I'd be given that it's a British, you know, it's a very much a British film. Yeah. Um, I'd be surprised if we didn't get BAFTA noms. It could well get Golden Globes noms, cause I'll, and I'll presumably in the comedy category. I also saw um, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Oh, yes. Uh, which uh, stars um, Melissa McCarthy as, uh, well, as as a real life art forger, and I won't go too much into that. But again, it's it's interesting that around this time of the year, you begin to see begin to get a feel for where films are going to fall. Uh, films that you've often heard quite a lot of in advance, and may have a certain impression of, and then begin figuring out, okay, based on your knowledge, based on knowledge, sort of an understanding of the awards bodies, what's going to get what. Yeah. So you think that Stan and Ollie might be a bit too lightweight for Oscars? It probably it's probably a bit too lightweight for Oscars. I mean, it's got a nice sort of strand in there about their career disappointment and maybe the world's moved past them a little bit and it's going to there's what there's a scene where laurel looks up and sees a big poster of abbott and costello right okay yes i am looking forward to it okay so other films that i also recommend from this just as a quick wrap-up uh, so fahrenheit 11 9 which you won as keen on as i was i thought it was really impressive um so michael moore basically talking about trump's america and how we got to trump's america it does the Michael Moore things very well of taking archive material to make a incredibly compelling thesis mixed in with some of the stunts that he does. It's a dark movie. In Fahrenheit 9-11, it was about getting people to vote so that George Bush wouldn't be president. Of course, that failed and he was president. He was voted in front of the term. In Fahrenheit 11-9, there is conspicuously no call to vote. It's much more about grassroots activism and strike action and teens who are trying to affect gun law change than actually going to your local politician and trying to get them to do anything. It also, it also, it's it, a cynical movie. It feels in many ways like a sequel to much of his work previously, or like oh, or picking, or picking, up, or picking up a lot of the themes you know, in terms of 
gun culture in the United States and uh, and the current political nightmare. I think it's one of those films that it was a cynical movie. I think it's like a cynical, realistic movie. I think I don't think he's being needlessly cynical. But I think, yeah, you could see it, an American trilogy beginning with Bowling for Columbine and then going to Fahrenheit 9-11 and then Fahrenheit 11-9 does kind of suggest how a right-wing in America has really governed the way that America's formed to what it is now. Of course, he has made other films in sicko. the meantime. So a sicko and capitalism... And where do we invade next? Or where to invade next? Sicko, of, that of course, was partially financed and heavily endorsed by Jared Kushner. Was it financed? I thought he just threw the party, the, um, a premier party for I it. I got the impression there was there was more behind, okay. there was more to it than that. I could be misremembering. Well, oh, sorry. at uh, the very least, he definitely put money into the premier party and there is a picture of more kind of cozying up to Jared Kushner in Fahrenheit 11.9 to show everyone is capable of, uh, of being in this circle of of scumbags, basically, that are fucking democracy. Very quickly, while we talk about misremembering, uh, during the uh, the previous podcast where we did our 50th, I uh, I misquoted Jaws in, uh, in Quint's speech in saying 6,000 men went into the water on the USS Indianapolis. That is, in fact, what I believe to be the capacity of Sky Central, the building we're currently in. <laughs> uh, he, in fact, said 1,100 men went into the water. So that's just a point to say that anything I say in here in terms of facts or quotes is always worth double-checking. <laughs> well, actually, I'm really, really glad you said that because I would have forgotten to do my correct. I said that Life of Brian, a film that I love and have seen a million times, but can't quite remember where it's set, obviously. I said it was set in ancient Rome. It is, of course, set in Jerusalem. So, uh, yes, a couple of little uh, corrections there. But there was so much good stuff in that 50th episode that a bit of pilot error is fine, I think. So, yes. As an antidote to the cynicism of Fahrenheit 11.9. So, won't you be my neighbour? So, this is a Mr. Rogers film. So, Fred Rogers was a children's entertainer who had a PBS show during the 60s, 70s and 80s called Mr. Rogers' Neighbourhood. And he was someone who thought that TV was there to entertain children, but was also there to improve children and to educate them. It's just a film about one man's decency, really. The film is not rose-tinted about the quality of Mr. Rogers' Neighbourhood. It looks like something that David Lynch might have come up with. Its its production values are low. Some of the ideas in it are just really, really bizarre. But he wanted kids to, to experience culture on the show and to experience other cultures. And he dealt with racism and he dealt with things like the assassination of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King and things like that. Yo-Yo Ma was on the show because he was a friend of his. So you have a cello solo by Yo-Yo Ma and there's a scene in which there's a cast regular in what looks like a paper mache snowman suit and a Japanese opera singer also in a paper mache snowman suit and the cast regular is thinking about how hard it is to be a snowman and the Japanese opera singer is doing an aria and it's like what fever dream did this emerge from? It basically is a lovely film about someone who just wanted to see the good in everyone and I'm sure there were thornier things to Fred Rogers than that. He did have his own company. One of the things that's kind of as suggested there is that the guy... Um, the cast regular who was singing the snowman song was gay and he was a gay black man and uh, Mr Rogers said you can't come out we will lose our sponsors if you come out so he made and he he was very very religious and it it took him some time to come around to his friend's homosexuality that's really the only kind of thing in there that suggests there was any shading to Fred Rogers there's a a, a sort of biographical drama about uh, Fred Rogers coming out uh, called You Are My Friend starring the other nicest person ever to work in Hollywood Tom Hanks directed by uh, Marielle Heller who uh, directed um, Can You Ever Forgive Me that I touched on very briefly a few minutes ago oh wow 
Well, that's a nice little tie-in as well, then. Yeah, um, so Won't You Be My Neighbour, it is It is a really, really nice film. And even if you don't know anything about Mr Rogers, which I really didn't, it is worth seeing just to see someone's idealism fueling their work and fueling their art over 30 years. Yeah, and it's also nice to watch a film about a children's entertainer that doesn't go nightmarishly dark at any point. Hmm. It does seem like he didn't have any real skeletons in his closet. So I think that might be us done, then. I think that might be us done. Well, thank you for listening to our roundup of the LFF this year at the London Film Festival. Thank you for putting up with my nasally drawl and, and uh, yeah, and if my rumbling stomach has picked up on this as well, I apologise for that. I'll try and cut round it. And what's next? I'm not sure. Could be the big epic ones that we did could be next. Yes. But that might take me a bit longer to edit. Anyway, we will see what's coming up next. There will be another podcast very soon. And it'll be a nice surprise to see what we're talking about in it. <laughs> Point you know about as much as we do, which is the uh, the usual for the podcast, yes, if indeed. we've established anything. Very little. Thank you for listening, as always. Thank you for listening. And we will speak to you soon. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I. La 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 la, right. La 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 la. Let's search for the. Cavern of Antimatter. Right, let's do that again. Um, Cavern of Antimatter. Cavern of <laughs> <laughs> I barely hold it together as it is. I'm going to go to rehearsal. Cavern of And the score. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> and the score was done. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the score was done by Cavern of Antimatter thank you <laughs>